Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. It's a lot. I think sometimes we take our senses for granted. Huh? What? <laughs> I bet as you age, you notice you're, you're saying, huh, a lot more, huh, Dr. Dean? What, what, did, what are you trying to say there? <laughs> well, I mean, it's common as we age that we get some form of hearing loss, right? It might be from cumulative damage to important parts of the ear, from noise exposure over time, your lifetime, all those rock and roll concerts you went to. <laughs> what, what? What are you saying? <laughs> But, I mean, we did a recent episode on noise exposure, and so that can definitely be a risk, as well as sometimes we can have breakdown of the cells on the inner ear over time, and those are the cells that are responsible for transmitting sound. Huh? What? Okay, funny. (laughs) Now you're just messing with me, right? (laughs) Um, But we also know that hearing loss, of course, is not unique to the elderly. Not that I'm calling you elderly. (laughs) I'm officially elderly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But many children experience varying degrees of hearing loss from different causes. And today we are joined by Dr. Aditi Baskudi, a pediatric otolaryngologist, also known as ear, nose, and throat surgeon here at UC Davis Children's Hospital to review some of the causes of hearing loss in kids and, importantly, what we can do about it. Dr. Baskudi, thank you so much for joining us on Kids Considered today. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk about one of my most favorite topics and one that I'm really passionate about. Great. Well, why don't we start by talking really about how prevalent is hearing loss in children? How much of a problem is this? We kind of quantify how prevalent hearing loss is depending on how severe it is. So about three infants per 1,000 live births will have um, hearing thresholds less than 20 decibels, which is a soft whisper. About one infant in every 1,000 will have hearing thresholds marked as severe to profound hearing loss, which is greater than 70 decibels. So probably one of the most common congenitally acquired things that we detect at birth. We like to start a lot of our episodes with a focus on a little like mini anatomy lesson, basic anatomy lesson for our listeners. Um, So can you explain what the normal ear anatomy required for hearing is and where issues might arise along that pathway? Sure. So I like to think of it starting from the perspective of a sound wave. So um, the sound wave comes into your ear canal and vibrates your eardrum. And that vibration sends a sound wave through um, the three ossicles or middle ear bones, which is the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. And then that sends a fluid wave through the cochlea. The cochlea is a snail-like structure whose job is to basically convert that mechanical energy to electrical energy through um, different kind of sodium-potassium channels. And then once that electrical current is created, the nerve is stimulated, which tells our brain that we're hearing sound. We kind of divide hearing loss based on sensory neural hearing loss, so a problem with the nerve or the cochlea not telling the brain that we're hearing it, or conductive hearing loss, meaning that the cochlea and the nerve work normally, but the sound just isn't getting there, 
either because of the middle ear bones, the eardrum, or fluid in the ear. Can we all agree that the middle ear bones have the coolest name out of all the bones in the body? And they're the smallest. They're tiny. Like, for just for, like, you know, a visual for our listeners, like, how big are they when you compare it to, like, a household item? The stapes, for example, looks like um, the delicate arch in um, Arches National Park at Moab, if you've ever been there. But that's like a gigantic version of it. The arch part of it is about two to three millimeters. And then the height of it is also about like uh, two to three millimeters. How big is the cochlea, that snail-like structure? Uh, So the cochlea is, if you were to unravel it, um, so take the, like, kind of the the snail-like and then kind of unravel it down, um, is about 28 millimeters in length. But when it's wound up, it's tiny. Yeah, it's tiny. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, think of it like a fruit by the foot, sort of, that you're, like, rolling it out. (laughs) Yeah, and the average distance between the eardrum and the oval window, which is the uh, membrane that attaches to the cochlea, is about four and a half millimeters. So It's also tiny. It's yeah. It is yeah. so, so impressive. Yeah, it's really an intricate structure and, and really interesting. And depending on which structure is affected, like you mentioned, that's either it leads to conductive hearing loss or the sensory neural hearing loss. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible that people could have both? And, you know, how would that happen? The biggest thing in diagnosis of hearing loss is identifying the type of hearing loss and how severe it is. Once we know those two things, we can treat it. So conductive hearing loss, we bypass it first and just test the cochlea itself. And sometimes you can have thresholds where they have a little bit of both. And so the nuances of talking about how we can treat one versus the other um, and what's fixable and what's not um, is important to go through with families. And I definitely, I use a lot of visual aids in that as well, because it's hard to um, conceptualize sometimes. In a past episode, we talked about newborn hearing screens, and we mentioned that all newborns should have a hearing screen before they leave the newborn nursery. Um, How good are these hearing screens at actually picking up true hearing loss in children? So, like, if it's abnormal, does that mean your newborn has hearing loss? If it's normal, does that mean that your child will never have hearing loss? Newborn hearing screening is probably one of those most successful screening programs that we have in the country. Prior to early hearing and detection intervention, only about like one in 100 infants was being screened, and now almost all are. So it's really successful. And we recommend that all infants are screened prior to one month of age and evaluated by three months of age with intervention if we detect hearing loss by six months. So we call it the 136 rule. They are very successful and accurate in. Um, identifying hearing loss, but there's different nuances between the types of screening that we have. So there is otoacoustic emission screening and ABR screening or auditory brainstem response screening. And the standard of care really is 
ABR or auditory brainstem response screening. That's the most accurate. It detects almost all thresholds above 30 to 40 decibels. So it'll it'll pick up on moderate and severe and profound hearing loss. There are some children with mild hearing loss that are missed in this, um, but overall a really, really sensitive screening tool um, and probably the most utilized because it tests the whole auditory system. Um, there is also um, otoacoustic screening, which tests more just the cochlear function itself, um, which is a great screening tool for kids who are low risk. But um, there are certain pathologies that we miss with that. And so we don't recommend it for high risk groups, such as babies who are in the neonatal ICU or things like that, because we're not testing the nerve or the brain itself. Interesting. So I have a lot of newborns who may have failed their initial screen. Maybe that was with the auto acoustic emissions test. And then they come in to see the audiologist at, you know, three weeks old and then they pass. It seems like that's usually what happens. Why, do, why does that happen? So it could be due to a various amount of things. So the people who are doing the screenings in the hospital are using an automated system. If the baby wakens during it or if there's a little bit of fluid in the ear, sometimes they don't pass, especially from birth. And then once that clears, they pass. But it really depends on the technique and whether or not the child stayed asleep during it. Well, just like any screening test, we always want it to pick up more people, right? Um, so that's that's in medicine, we say that screening should identify more people than actually have the condition because we don't want to miss people, right? And so a lot of parents get nervous about this and I tell them, you know, in the vast majority of cases, your child will go on to pass. But it's so great that we had the opportunity to pick this up to make sure that they don't need intervention. And that's what I, we always tell our newborn hearing screeners, too, is that your job is to identify the children who need further testing. Um, it's not to um, minimalize or um, try to get a good result each time. The job is to pick up the kids who need more testing. So when I was tested as a kid last century, what I remember is like putting on headphones and then like holding up a finger and saying like when you can hear something. But how, how does the ABR work in a newborn who obviously can't do that? I mean, how, how does that work? So we're actually testing brainwaves. So there is a very distinct pattern that happens when you have exposure to sound. But the brainwaves that we're looking at are so small that in an awake patient, you'd never be able to see them if you were looking at all brainwaves. So that's why the child needs to be quiet brain, asleep. Less than six months, we can do this with natural sleep. For older than six months, it has to be something that's done under general anesthesia. And what's interesting about it is that these brain waves can actually, the delay in the milliseconds between when that brain wave becomes detectable can actually be quantified into decibels of hearing loss. So it's like an EEG? Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. interesting. So what are the early signs or symptoms? I'm talking like infant period that parents should look for that would raise concern that their child might have hearing loss? The biggest one is behavioral observation. So does their child respond to their voice? Do they respond to loud sounds around the house, like the dog barking, a pot falling, their siblings, things like that? Um, and then are they meeting their developmental milestones? Um, are they cooing, babbling, 
saying consonants, vowels, all those things that we talk about and screen for during those regular pediatrician visits, the first year of life, are really important. And I do trust parents a lot. I feel like um, they know their child better than anyone else. And if they have a concern, um, I take it seriously. You mentioned children in the NICU, the neonatal ICU, might be at increased risk for hearing loss and so really should be closely monitored. Or Could you talk about why that is and other populations that should be monitored more closely? So it's interesting because if you look at studies as gestational age or birth weight decreases, the prevalence of hearing loss increases. And the reason behind that is so multifactorial, we don't know. Part of it could be medical complexity, other medical problems. The studies are confounded by so many other variables when you look at especially extreme premature children. The requirement for ventilation after birth and duration of hospital stay greater than 12 days are both independent factors for hearing loss as well. The other patient population that we want to look for is um, any patient with a known genetic hearing loss that runs in the family or um, children with congenital CMV. And it's hard to know, especially because so many children with congenital CMV are asymptomatic, but it is one of the most prevalent causes of acquired congenital hearing loss. And the incidence of it is about one in every one to 200 live births. Dean, can you review CMV for us? <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna... <laughs> as, the, as the resident pediatric infectious disease expert. I was just going to say, for people who aren't familiar with CMV, that's um, a virus, cytomegalovirus, which is a very common virus that in the, in the United States, about half of all young adults will already be infected. So it's a really common infection. Usually it's asymptomatic, but for some it can be serious. And if infection occurs during pregnancy or before pregnancy, Sometimes it may be passed to the child before birth, and if that does happen, it may lead to hearing loss. It doesn't always lead to symptomatic infection or hearing loss, but in a, in a small percentage, it can lead to hearing loss. So that's why we want to monitor those children more closely. And what's interesting is that those with symptomatic congenital CMV, about 50% of those children will develop hearing loss within the first two years. But Children with asymptomatic congenital CMV, which is almost 90%, 10% of those will develop hearing loss, but it can even be late acquired hearing loss up to the age of 18 years of age. So that is why a lot of pediatric ENTs, infectious disease people are advocating for kind of universal congenital CMV screening at birth, um, but the financial and the implementation of a screening program like that is difficult. Yeah, maybe maybe in the future there's a lot of discussion um, about that, but it's, it it always is kind of weird to think about that that somebody that this can happen sometime years in the future. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the other sort of high risk conditions that I think of as a general pediatrician would be like there are certain antibiotics um, that if used in the early in early life can can have some we call it ototoxicity. It just means that it can cause damage to the ear. Um, and then kids that have had like meningitis or infection in the the brain spinal cord area can cause some damage to those nerves as well. Um, those are two other things that I think of. The AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, also recommends routine hearing screens as outside of that newborn hearing screen at ages four, five, six, eight, 
10 and then at some point between 11 and 14 and then again in the teenage years, um, even if the child does not have any symptoms. So that's what Dr. Dean was talking about with like raising his hand. That's why we start at four. It's kind of like the first age that they can like follow directions when they hear the beep, raise their hand. But what if there's a concern for possible language delay or hearing loss? Um, you know, what would be the next step once once that's suspected? From my standpoint, the first step in any workup for speech delay is obtaining an accurate hearing test. Um, because if you can't hear the sounds that people are saying around you, you're never going to learn how to say them. The second, from uh, an ENT perspective, is examination of oral anatomy, making sure that there's nothing in the mouth or the palate that would prevent a child from saying certain tones, sounds, or um, producing sound. And then third is really working with the correct early intervention services, speech therapy services, and getting them the um, intervention that they need if the number one and number two are kind of ruled out. I think this is really important because so often when I have a kid that is not talking on time, I will tell the parent, I'm ordering a hearing test and I'm going to send you to speech therapy. And they say, like, I'm positive my kid can hear. You don't need to do that part. And I'm like, no, you do. Um, so that's just what every, you know, parents and you can advocate for yourself. I talk to parents who are listening too. If, if you're noticing this and your kid hasn't had a hearing test yet, it's totally reasonable to ask your pediatrician to order you one. But I do have to be honest, when I get those tympanograms back, I they are a little have always been a little bit hard for me to interpret. Um, it looks like a, a little like, you know, bell curve or it's flat or other things. So um, like you mentioned, one of them is to look at at sort of the movement of the eardrum or the tympanic membrane and the function of the middle ear. And then the other test that you mentioned was to look at the nerve, right? Can you walk us through those specific tests one more time and um, sort of what they would, what a normal one would look like and what an abnormal one would look like? In a hearing test in a child, we call it a test battery. And the reason we call it a test battery is because not one part of it gives us a whole picture, but we put it together, especially in children who can't just raise their hand and say, yes, I hear it. No, I can't. Like um, after the age of four. like um, So we start with a tympanogram, which is really testing the compliance of the eardrum. So if we see a nice peak, that means that we put pressure against the eardrum and it moved. And that's what's supposed to happen. And so that you can consider that um, a type A or um, there's no fluid in the ear. The eardrum's moving like it's supposed to. If there's fluid stuck behind the eardrum, you put pressure against it and it doesn't move. So that gives an indication that there might be some fluid behind the eardrum or something that is affecting their hearing, like almost like they're hearing underwater. And then sometimes we see the peak in the like negative pressure range. And so we call that eustachian tube dysfunction, like they can't pop their ears. And the best kind of scenario that I can think of that's analogous to that is like if you were on an airplane and the airplane was descending and you need to pop your ears and everything's really echoey um, and you just can't hear right, that's what like a negative pressure tympanogram would look like. So we put that together with their testing in the booth. In young kids, we have them look at 
We expose them to sound, see what they turn their head to. It's usually reinforced with something fun or cute, like a clapping teddy bear or something like that. And we can get some basic thresholds of what they can hear, but we're not testing a specific ear because they can't tell us that. And then we do an otoacoustic emission, similar to what I talked about with newborn hearing screening, to kind of tell us whether or not they're passing a hearing screen on each side. And then we put them together and say, hey, there's some amount of hearing loss, probably related to fluid. Let's get that treated. Um, and that's the most common thing that we see. Um, but then if there's no fluid and we see hearing loss, then it needs further workup. And did we talk about the eustachian tube yet? <laughs> so that's what the, is the eustachian tube? So that's the, I feel like this is like when when anything's wrong with the ears, people are like, "Oh, you have eustachian tube dysfunction." Uh-huh. I mean, that connects the middle ear to the upper airway to, to the right? to the nose, to the essentially. Nose. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we all have eustachian tubes. Um, the point of it is so that we can equalize the pressure behind the eardrum and in front of the eardrum. Um, children inherently have eustachian tube dysfunction, meaning that they can't pop their ears properly. And part of it is because of their head size. So um, in you and I, our eustachian tube is about at a 45 degree angle. Um, but in babies and especially young toddlers, it's more horizontal or almost flat. And so even if they pop their ears, the fluid or the the pressure isn't um, as easily equalized. So when you hear about kids growing out of fluid in their ears, ear infections, eustachian tube issues, part of it is the maturity of their skull actually changing the angle of that tube. Mm-hmm. So it's a normal growth process. Normal growth process, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are the most common causes of hearing loss in, in children? Like I mentioned before, one of the most common causes, especially conductive hearing loss, is fluid in the ears. And that is easily treatable. Sometimes it goes away on its own. Sometimes you need ear tubes, which is one of the most common procedures that we do. If we're talking sensory neural hearing loss, like related to the cochlea or the nerve itself, we think about the most common genetic causes of hearing loss, which is actually protein called connexin 26. That's the most common cause. And then we have congenital CMV, which I had mentioned before. And we have syndromic hearing loss, the most common being Usher syndrome and Pendred syndrome. So once the hearing loss has been diagnosed, we know what kind it is. It's either um, related to maybe fluid behind the ear, a conductive hearing loss, or maybe there is damage to the nerve, sensory neural hearing loss. Then let's talk about intervention. So both surgically, I know you're the surgeon, but also with like devices and developmental services. Yeah, for sure. So the biggest thing is, um, especially for conductive hearing loss, is identifying what the problem is because we have interventions that can fix it, like ear tubes. If it's not due to fluid, is it due to a hole in the eardrum? Is it due to an issue with the middle ear bones or scarring in the middle ear space? Um, A lot of the causes of conductive hearing loss are, quote-unquote, fixable because we have some sort of surgery to fix it. Or removing earwax. Or removing That's the most earwax. common in my yes. office. I'm like, I can do something about this. But you don't always have to do surgery. So sometimes for conductive hearing loss, we have hearing loss and we say, hey, you have some, but it's probably the surgery is a little high risk. Maybe we just make the sound louder with a hearing aid. And there's a couple different types of hearing aids we can do for that. 
So you don't always have to jump to surgery for conductive hearing loss, but it is often the most easily fixable with low-risk procedures. And then how about the treatment for sensory neural hearing loss um, specifically? Yeah, so that is a little bit less, quote, fixable, if that makes sense. There's not a surgery I can do unless there's it's very severe. So usually you just have to overcome the hearing loss by placing a hearing aid. And for mild to severe hearing loss, um, hearing aids are probably the best and the most successful hearing device we can give. Severe to profound hearing loss, however, a lot of kids, no matter how loud you make the sound, don't benefit from that noise. And so that's when we start thinking about things like cochlear implantation, which I can go into as well. But the traditional treatment for sensory neural hearing loss is amplification. I recently became aware of videos of children who've had the cochlear implants, and then they get their devices turned on for the first time. And these are really just joyful and beautiful. So if you need a good happy cry, I'd recommend, you know, searching for these videos online. Totally. <laughs> Can you talk about this procedure? And and I know you said it's reserved for just the most severe cases, sort of. Why is that? And and. Talk to us a little bit about the procedure itself. Yeah, so in kids with severe to profound hearing loss, I keep mentioning this, so I want to equate it to something that we can relate to. So a kid with severe to profound hearing loss can stand on an airport tarmac without headphones on and barely hear the the sound of the planes go off, okay? Um, And so that's how loud we're making the sound, and they're not responding to it. And so an implant is essentially taking over the job of the cochlea, which is to convert that mechanical energy to electrical energy, and placing an electrode to stimulate the nerve directly into the cochlea. And it's not what I would call a plug-and-play. Like, you don't just put the implant in, and then all of a sudden you can hear, because that technology is never going to be as accurate or sensitive as normal native hearing. And so a cochlear implant is, um, we have a multidisciplinary team where we have an audiologist, a speech and language pathologist, a surgeon, a psychologist or a social worker, a deaf educator, um, and any other specialist relevant to the child and their medical needs in order to support them through their cochlear implantation and the post-surgical therapy because their brain has to learn how to utilize that sound into something that's functional. And it really is shared decision-making. In a neurodevelopmentally normal child, um, we say who's implanted early, um, ideally less than one year of age, at least less than two years of age, with the appropriate therapy by the age of two can have the same amount of speech and language, oral speech and language, as their normal hearing peers. So very successful, but you have to be set up for success. Wow. I mean, that that is truly amazing. How and I'm guessing that you have to be like near a big pediatric center because not many people are trained and have that multidisciplinary team to be able to do this work. Correct. If we're talking appropriate care, you really should be, especially for pediatric cochlear implantation, should be in the hands of a multidisciplinary team who can provide those resources for you and really talk to you about what that means for that child to reach their maximum potential. And that can be a combination of spoken language, 
sign language, things like that. Um, we don't just you know, um, talk about spoken language with the family. So we talked about hearing aids. We talked about um, possible surgical procedures for both conductive as well as sensory neural hearing loss. What other interventions are really important for kids of all ages that might be struggling with hearing loss? That's a good question. I think there are a lot of them are overlooked, so I think it's important that we talk about these things. Every child with hearing loss requires support and continued monitoring. Studies have shown that even children with minimal hearing loss are at risk for educational problems and benefit from support at home and in the classroom. Um, that increased effort that it takes to listen and understand speech in a noisy classroom, if you have even mild hearing loss, can impact speech and development and the entire family in a hearing impaired child. So working with the family on principles that can alleviate frustrations and strengthen communication, like speaking face-to-face, -face, avoiding calling out from another room, ensuring understanding after talking, things like that can engage the child and prevent conflict at the home. And then the other thing is enrollment in early intervention services. Um, that can really improve speech outcomes. Um, so simple things like having um, an early in intervention mentor, talking about school preferences, like preferential seating in school, the use of um, FM system where they can um, hear the teacher better by something that they're wearing around their neck or any similar, similar device can improve academic performance. So I talk to all of my patients, even with the most mild hearing loss, that they need to talk to their school about what they're doing there. And then Severe hearing loss, like I mentioned before, talking about all forms of communication and not um, limiting the family or putting any sort of bias on any sort of communication that makes sense for that family. American Sign Language, a total communication device if they have other developmental disabilities, things like that, and what it means to be in a mainstream school versus a school that is dedicated to hearing loss is important. So we've discussed these amazing therapies that are available. Um, I think it's also important to talk about prevention. And so for genetic causes that you mentioned of hearing loss, we can focus on screening and early detection. And for recurrent ear infections, of course, we recommend vaccines and hygiene and decreasing risk factors for infections. And then there's limiting noise exposure for acquired hearing loss also. Yeah, so we did a recent um, episode on noise, and, and that will be on the website. But what do you recommend for limiting harmful noise in kids? So if we are going to a place where we know that it's going to be noisy, I recommend noise-canceling headphones, especially for babies. And uh, not only that, are they, they're very cute, too. <laughs> <laughs> really focusing on healthy noise exposure, appropriate sound volumes, especially when using media like older kids and their headphones, things like that. And then um, staying away from similar to what like OSHA standards are, which you guys may have talked about before in terms of limiting time exposure to the high decibel noises, like over 90 decibels, things like that, a really limiting time between those um, and um, making sure that we're cognizant of those. This is a field that's made so much progress since I started working. Are there, there's other research that you'd like to highlight, other advancements in the field of pediatric hearing loss that you think parents should be aware of? 
Yeah, definitely. So we already kind of talked about early intervention services. Um, cochlear implantation, we're implanting earlier and earlier as early as six months in certain populations. Um, and then there's a lot of studies going on about the other impacts of hearing loss. So what is, how does it impact mental health? How does it impact um, uh, like their social development in school? How do we manage what we call the deaf plus population? So children with hearing loss and other um, other medical comorbidities because it's not as straightforward. Um, do we implement universal CMV screening? There's also some um, gene therapy that's out there. Now, those are very, very um, in their early stages, uh, mostly in animal models as to if we have a known genetic hearing loss, can we change the proteins in the cochlea, things like that. So there's a lot going on. Um, but I think in terms of daily practical um, research that's going on, I think a lot of it has to do with quality of life. So amazing. I think, you know, the ear is is fascinating. Hearing is fascinating. And it's so easy to th take those things for granted, right? And so I really, really appreciate you coming on and talking about this topic with us today. And um, we will share some of the resources that we talked about on our website. Um, but let's summarize today's topic. Yeah, so we discussed that the two major types of hearing loss are conductive hearing loss or sensory neural hearing loss, and that newborn screenings um, are very important for all children to have. Right. That sometimes parents may identify this on their own, noticing that their child's speech and language doesn't develop quite normally or they don't attend to sounds in their environment. You should bring this up with your healthcare provider and ensure that you get a appropriate hearing test. Mm -hmm. We do have other routine hearing screens throughout childhood past the newborn period, including in young children and tweens and in teens. Yep. And if a cause of hearing loss is identified, there are various treatment options. Um, some may be surgical, so possibly ear tubes if you have conductive hearing loss from fluid, um, if you have the profound hearing loss related to the damage to the cochlea or nerve issue, they might do a cochlear implant. But none of that takes the place of those early interventions that we talked about, right? Speech language, um, early um, development and, and learning ASL or, or having the wraparound services for the families. And then, you know, in addition to screening, other preventative measures are to prevent ear infections and then to limit noise exposure so that um, acquired hearing loss doesn't occur. And that reminds me of a joke. <laughs> okay, let's hear, let's hear it. <laughs> what is the most musical part of the human body? What? The ear drum. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. It's not a. It's it's not a great one. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered and Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. Kids Considered.